Let's look back on the Albert Gonzalez prosecution and sentencing. What does it all mean? Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. I'm talking today with Kim Peretti, formerly of the Department of Justice, who led the prosecution of Albert Gonzalez. And Kim, it's such a pleasure to catch up with you. Uh, thanks, Tom. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with your members today. Well, Kim, it's been about a month now. Gonzalez and his conspirators have all been sentenced. What's the significance of these penalties now that they finally have come down? Well, it's certainly significant because of the the length, and particularly of Gonzalez's sentence of 20 years. It's the longest ever identity theft or cybercrime sentence that I'm aware of. Um, So hopefully it will have an impact on on the broader hacking community and will certainly act as a a general deterrent. you know, looking back at the eight years that I was prosecuting these types of crimes, it may also be a signal that we'll start seeing and continue to see longer sentences for for these type of uh, financial cyber crimes in particular. Um, I recall earlier in my career that I would be at one sentencing after another where the judges would um, certainly explain that this was significant type of crime, but at the end, they would um, sort of choose the balance of special deterrence over um, general deterrence, which would result in you know looking at the individual more and saying, well, I'm going to give you a second chance, I'm going to give you probation, or just a very minimal time in in um, in prison. Whereas in this recent string, each judge really made it clear in the record the importance here of general deterrence and sending a message to the community about how significant this is. Now, it certainly was one of the biggest conspiracies. I think even one judge mentioned um, it might be the only time when he's on the bench that he will see a $400 million conspiracy. But the individuals um, were the same that I've seen throughout my career before judges, you know, young 20s when this crime occurred, um, good backgrounds. And and, um, in this set of cases, we really saw that general deterrence be prominent. Well, Kim, you put it in perspective when you talk about having devoted eight years to this, and I know that certainly the Gonzalez prosecution, and you've been involved with with Gonzalez for for a number of years. Looking at this in perspective, what was the hardest part about the Gonzalez prosecution? Well, there were three really challenging aspects to this. Um, One was the identification of the individuals. Uh, The second was building on you know, developing cases just based on technical facts and forensic information. And then the third was the international aspect. So let's walk through each of those. With the identification, you know, we were trying to put identities basically to Internet numbers. Um, cybercrime has evolved such that um, in the shadow crew days, early, you know, 2003, 2004, we were chasing nicknames on the Internet, which was you know, hard but easier than chasing numbers. A lot of times what we're chasing now is um, ICQ numbers and using numbers to register in chat sessions. And they can change those numbers every five days, every five weeks. So we've got a string of numbers, evidence, you know, revealing a string of numbers um, of someone committing a crime, but getting back to the person is, is very difficult. Um, it often requires us to weave in a number of factors, um, you know, anonymous digital currency accounts, drop boxes, registration information, you know, looking for subtle hints in the chats themselves about identity. Maybe they reference whether they go on vacation or maybe they reference a birthday or, a, you know, so we're always 
have to just pull in lots of pieces to try to identify these individuals. Um, the second part is building a case on technical facts. Um, you know, anticipating if it goes to trial, what is this going to look like at trial? And when I was preparing for the New York part of this case, you know, getting the witnesses lined up, you realize that I have, you know, five forensic you know, witnesses, for forensic, um, you know, individuals involved, agents or otherwise, and how is that going to appear to the jury? The jury likes to hear stories of what happens in our physical world, and if you present them with one technical fact after the other, a jury or a judge is, is really likely to get confused. Um, and in the Gonzalez case, and part of it, and there's all kinds of, you know, several different conspiracies involved, but part of it involved matching malware, um, the hash value on malware, to um, hash value found on servers with hash values found on victims, and then linking victims, corporate victims together, um, by malware found on their system um, by hash value. So, you know, translating that into English, anticipating a trial is very, very difficult. Um, the third aspect is the international aspect. And again, the Gonzalez case cases um, had, you know, significant international connections. And that means, you know, foreign co-conspirators, um, foreign witnesses, uh, foreign evidence, you know, evidence stored on foreign servers or st servers stored in foreign countries. Um, and all of that makes these, these types of prosecutions extremely challenging. Um, and then to build in, you've got foreign communications. So you, you're, you're reviewing evidence of maybe a slang dialect in a particular Eastern European country. And then on top of that, the slang of the Carters talking about dumps and cobs and knobs. Um, so really, the communication aspect um, is another part that makes it pretty challenging. Well, it sounds like you've earned a graduate degree, Kim, but I'm not sure what it's in. <laughs> Certainly some sort of language. <laughs> Kim, give us some insight. If you can walk us through, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming this goes back as far as the TJX breach or, or even further. How exactly does an investigation like this unfold? If you could just take us sort of from the from the incident to the sentencing, it would be an education. Sure, sure. Um, the way I think of it is it unfolds very, very slowly. It's, you know, piece by piece. It's just like a puzzle, maybe a 500-piece puzzle. Um, you get little pieces of data along the way. And what has been significant in these cases and solving these cases is working with historical data. Um, so, you know, in one of the cases we had the service, the Secret Service, which does a phenomenal job of um, keeping the historical information in some sort of place where it's easily accessible and searchable, you know, we had pulled up information from a, a laptop computer uh, seized from an Estonian in Spain, for instance, um, and there were pieces on that laptop that were very helpful. Uh, I'll give a couple more examples. Um, registration data on one of the um, um, chat accounts that was used, there was registration data on there that um, two pieces of registration data and one um, from early on had matched with an email address that Albert G Gonzalez had used when we first arrested him in 2003 and that was on his laptop. So, you know, having these, and that was sort of one of those critical moments of, we know we're sort of in the right direction now. 
Um, there were also chat references, um, and on these chat references, they talk about eagled accounts. So that was another investigation and prosecution that I was involved in. So we got that database out, pulled up the transaction histories in, in some of the eagled accounts, looked for the counterparties, found memo lines, you know, indicating certain activity um, and names and locations down in Florida. So that sort of pulls, that's another link pulling things together. Um, Another, you know, another example I could give is um, there was one chat where um, Gonzalez was talking about someone who had been arrested. At that time, we didn't know it was Gonzalez, but had this chat of this person who had been talking about the, the breach in both TJX and Dave and & Buster's, and then he mentions to his co-conspirator, I just got a buddy that was arrested yesterday. Um, can you help me? I, I might need to get a passport for him. So then, you know, it's this search and chase. Well, who could have, who in this community that if we're, do we have any information of an individual that was arrested? And and the service did a great job, found an individual. We were able to locate that individual's hard drive when he was arrested years before that. And on that hard drive was a reference uh, to Gonzalez. So there's another connection that was made. And at the end of the day, at some point, there's just so many connections, you feel the critical mass is there, that at least you've established probable cause. And once you've established probable cause, then you can put together your search warrants for particular locations that, you, that might be evidence of criminality. Um, and that's what we did in this case, and searched several locations down in Florida. Um, and then we were able to get a hold of some co-conspirators, and co-conspirators made statements. And one of the statements was very helpful for our Eastern District of New York case, which um, enabled us to immediately get a complaint on a complaint and then subsequent indictment on Albert Gonzalez in the Eastern District of New York. Um, and then several months later, um, you know, the, 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 the other cases, the evidence developed and unfolded um, such that there was an ability to indict them in other cases. So it really was a progression, and, you know, looking back on it, all those pieces of evidence along the way of other unrelated individuals at the time, starting back in 2004, um, you know, going back through those hard drives, they had critical pieces of information that sort of able to tie this whole maze together and put all the pieces together. So, Kim, just to take it a step further, how were you able to go from amassing that evidence to having such a compelling case that the conspirators really had no, no choice but to plead guilty and then to get the sentencings that you did? Well, I've never, ha I've never had one of these type carding cases go to trial yet because usually the evidence is... Um, so good, and um, it's more of once they're caught, they know they're caught. Um, and in this case, you know, when you have chats that you have a very good link to who was the person um, doing the communication, and then you have the communication actually saying, I'm hacking into this system, um, that's pretty compelling evidence. And, you know, through the process of discovery, when they start to see the evidence, and then, you know, what you try to do is have one, you know, one of the lower um, persons involved in the conspiracy um, start talking. And, and once one person starts ta talking, it's like, it can be like a domino effect. Um, this, and the story unravels further, and no one wants to be the last man standing, so to speak. So, Kim, after all this is done, everyone's been sentenced now. Let's talk about lessons learned. What did you gain 
from this just exhausting experience? <laughs> well, cer- certainly, um, one of the most important things I think is to uh, to have to gain insight into the criminals. Um, important to understand their techniques, but also to put perspective on what type of actor is has the ability to get into all of our systems. Are we dealing with organized crime as we know it? Are we dealing with um, you know very sophisticated 40 year olds who have had 20 years of training? Are we dealing with nation state actors? Um, and one you know helpful piece of information we gain looking at these criminals that was that they certainly were sophisticated in in some ways. They were able to be self-taught. Um, at least the stateside individuals were not necessarily highly educated, not formally trained in computers. They were self-taught, but they were also immature in other ways. Um, I read hundreds, if not thousands, of pages of chats of you know jabber, you know gibberish chats, drug use, talking about discos, talking about rap songs and girls, and being asked out on a date while they're chatting. You know, hundreds of pages, and then maybe 99 pages later, there's a chat of, oh, I'm in, I just hacked into this system. So I think that gives good insight of the type of criminal actor that is able to get and penetrate into so many of our systems in the financial area, um, and that's that's one particular helpful piece of insight. We contrast that with the co-conspirators in Eastern Europe, which we saw to be more educated, more formally educated, uh, maybe going to some of the best mathematical schools or computer science schools, and also even at a young age having um, really taking their money, which they were earning hand over fist and investing it, um, buying, one bought a housing development, one bought a hotel and a restaurant. Um, so, you know, that's very helpful to understand that there's really a, a huge industry that's very profitable for uh, a number of people, on, you know, across the Atlantic. But on the positive side for law enforcement, I think it was incredibly significant as a message and, you know, to the outside world that, that law enforcement can catch even the most sophisticated of cyber criminals no matter where they are. Well, Kim, what's next for you now? Well, um, I mean, next for, and to keep an eye out for, I mean, I sort of see this as the point of, um, so the point of sale systems uh, problem that we have, we can see, continue to see sort of unabated compromises of these point of sale systems across every vertical sector in the payment card area. So I think we'll really need to stay on top of the criminals as they're changing their techniques, maybe not going after large, you know, massively large volumes of track data, but targeting smaller um, entities in different sectors, but still going after those point of sale systems. Um, we'll also need to keep plugging away at better methods to protect our systems against these continuous attacks. So I think that'll keep all of us busy for a while. Of course, we haven't even touched upon uh, the sophisticated phishing and, and ACH fraud, which is also another thing to continue to be focused on, but we could take up another podcast talking about those issues. And Kim, how about for yourself personally? I understand you've left the Department of Justice. What do you want to do next? I have left the department, and I'm transitioning over to the private sector, where I started from eight years ago, um, um, less on the legal side and more on the consulting side, and I'm really excited to uh, be able to take this knowledge that I've gained um, and share it with 
with companies and, and hopefully provide some value doing that. Well, I bet we talk about these issues again, Kim. I appreciate your time and your insight, and I wish you well. Thank you very much, Tom. We've been talking with Kim Peretti, formerly of the Department of Justice. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.